Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Peter Lehm returns to the show. He's recently published the book Champagne, and he is the mind behind ChampagneGuide.net as well online. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi, Levy. Very nice to see you back. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. You've got a new book on Champagne, which is really your, uh, in a way, your (laughs) life's work, I think. (laughs) This is true. And in terms of Champagne literature, in terms of what's out there already, what did you desire? What did you see as necessary to make? There's a, a lot of good stuff written. I think that, much like champagne industry itself, uh, you know, maybe in the, the latter part of the 20th century, things got a little bit formulaic. In, in my experience with champagne, um, you know, having been working with champagne for, for 20 years, I have seen the region change dramatically in that time. So I guess what I really wanted to do was write a book from a very contemporary perspective, write a, a really 21st century champagne book. If the 20th century was about winemaking in Champagne. The 21st century is really about the vineyards. It's about, about vineyards in terms of terroir, you know, specificity of place. It's about vineyards uh, in terms of viticulture and improving the way that people work. And, you know, I mean, the, the Champenois are really good at winemaking. That's, that's you know, it, you, you can say that in the 20th century, they really mastered the art of making wine. And this return to, to the vineyards, you know, makes it all the more exciting. And the reasons that things have changed in the last 20 years are what? What's the reason for the acceleration of change? You know, different people gravitate towards different things. So like, you know, if you talk to, you know, wine professionals or, or you know, even producers or, or consumers, uh, you know, you talk to them about what kind of defines contemporary champagne. And, you know, for some people, it's, it's rise of grower estates. For some people, it's low dosage and non-dosé wines. For some people, it's single vineyard, single terroir wines. For other people, it's like organic or biodynamic wines. And for me, you know, all of this is true, but I view these as all more like symptoms. I feel that all of these things have manifested themselves because we are finally treating champagne as a real wine. And by we, I mean both producers and consumers. So instead of treating champagne as you know, something separate, and something, you know, maybe in the wine world, you know, maybe inferior and, and you know, maybe not, not given as much attention. We are acknowledging that champagne is a wine like any other. And because of that, then it's allowed to explore all of the dimensions and boundaries and phenomena that's happening elsewhere in the wine world. So before it was kind of in the, the niche of special occasion. Now it's a wine. Certainly on the consumer side. You know, you're starting to see that change. You're starting to see sommeliers and retailers actively promoting champagne as you know, a wine to drink like any other. On the producer side, I think that in the past, you could talk about different styles of champagne, right? So you could talk about light-bodied ones, you could talk about fuller-bodied ones. Obviously, like Perrier-Jouet is very different from Krug. And so you could talk about champagne in these terms of house style. But as far as like, you know, looking at champagne globally, stylistically, it was very narrow. And today, that's completely exploded. I mean, champagne, the world of champagne has never been more diverse than it is today. And that means that, you know, yes, there are, there are 
many wines that are lesser or you know, that are less good. But it also means that that champagne is pushing the envelope on the other end as well. What I saw at the restaurant level is a change from the go-to white burgundy first wine, then having a bottle of red, whether that was Bordeaux Burgundy or California Cab, to maybe we'll start with a bottle of dryish champagne as the first wine at the table, and then go with red. And I think that that, at least at the sommelier level, at least in the New York environments that I see, has really driven much bigger champagne lists. Mm. It's in a way in the era of Premox kind of replaced white burgundy as like a first wine, especially some of the lower pressure examples. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the literature. And one of the things that really came through in the early part of your book is how much detail there is in the previous writings, like, for example, Andre Julien's topography, foreshadowing some of the more terroir expressive changes that we've seen more today. You see a real shift in Champagne, you know, right around the middle of the 20th century. In fact, this is not unlike the literature of Sherry. You know, you, you look at all these old Sherry books in both English and Spanish, and the idea of the Pagos, the vineyard areas, this was always extremely important. And as a wine student, right, you know, you would learn the crews of Bordeaux, you would learn the vineyards of Burgundy, and you would learn the Pagos of Jerez. And all of a sudden, this disappears, like right around like 1960 or so. And we don't talk about it again until today. And in Champagne, there's a similar phenomenon. I mean, you're reading André Julien is, is an amazing experience because, you know, he's writing in the early part of the 19th century. And he's referencing individual parcels in, in Champagne like any grower would do today. And, you know, you think this is fantastic. Uh, you know, you move forward to Henry Vizitelli, you know, and, you know, again, this really detailed picture of Champagne as a place. And then, so the maps that are in my book, they were made by Louis Lerma in 1944. And these detailed, the individual ludis of Champagne, uh, you know, basically as they are today. Some names have changed and some areas have changed, but it's still a, a really useful reference today. And we have nothing like it. That's never been replicated. You know, this is 1944. And, you know, you would think that as the century progressed, that we would get more and more into this, but instead the opposite happened and all mention of this vanished. You know, there were writers who, you know, would try to talk about individual villages. I particularly liked Serena Sutcliffe's book in 1988, where she made an effort to put like detailed maps in, in her book and, 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 you know, gave us a little vineyard tour and tried to explain that there was a significant difference between this village and that one. But that was as far as we went. And it was like all this knowledge was lost for an entire generation. And so today, we're rediscovering it, but we're discovering it in a different way. Today, you know, among top quality producers, the expression of terroir is a really key subject. And more and more people are vinifying by parcel rather than by village. You know, normally you go to a house and you're tasting Van Clare, right? So base wines before they're blended. And you might have a Pinot Noir from Ai, so a single village Pinot Noir, right? You know, that's different from a Pinot Noir from Ambonet. That's different from a Pinot Noir from Boozy. And today you have people like Louis Roder or Krug who, instead of having one Pinot Noir from Ambonet, they have like 15, you know, because they're, they're vinifying each parcel separately. And that becomes really exciting when you think about trying to learn the details of the terroir of Champagne. You know, people say, if all of this is going to be blended together, then what difference does it make? But I think that it's just as important to have base wines of distinction when you're blending as when you're bottling them separately. Um, you can't make a good blend unless you have good components, right? You know, in my book, I compare it to an orchestra. So with an orchestra, you have many different instruments that are all playing together, but that doesn't negate the importance of each individual one. Each of them is contributing towards a whole. Then the quality of each of them is going to lend itself to the quality of the whole. With Krug, as amazing as Claude Menil and Claude Ambonet are, um, I really think that Grand Cuvée is their greatest wine. That's what some Champenois have said, that there's a, an art of blending, right? But at the same time, it seems like that's not enough by itself, because we've seen some examples where the blend, you know, you have to have the raw materials, as you said. It's true. It's true. And blending isn't just a process of mixing all these different wines together. 
there are cases where one wine can cancel another one out. You know, having done plenty of amateur blending experiments, you know, I, I, can, I can personally attest to that. You had mentioned to me in the past that before you really started to taste Vinclair with producers, it wasn't that common for people to taste Vinclair. No, not at all. I started going to Champagne in 1997. I started tasting Vinclair in 98, so tasting the 97s. And I've tasted every vintage since then, but that was very rare at that time. In the late 90s, people would look at me like really funny. They would say, are you sure that you really want to taste this? And, and I, had, I had to insist. And I think that, you know, maybe back then, the wines were less ripe. They were a little more punishing to taste. I mean, today, if you're not used to it, it's still, it's still punishing. Van Clare is, is very high in acidity. And it's not always super overt in fruit. And so it's, it's not like tasting white wine in barrel. But at the same time, I think that, you know, with both climate change and with a voluntary effort on the part of producers to harvest riper, Van Clare has gotten a lot easier to taste today than, than it used to be. You mentioned that three of the warmest vintages on record for Champagne have been in the last 15 years. Yeah. You know, when you talk to, uh, I mean, not even necessarily old timers, I mean, you know, you talk to people our age, you know, and they, they say that when they were kids, you know, which is only a generation ago, the Champagne harvest used to regularly start in October. And that was just normal. You know, gradually it moved to September and, you know, like mid to late September. When, you know, when I got in the wine trade, you know, mid to late September was when you would expect Champagne harvest to be. You know, and so far we have had four harvests on record that have started in August, which is extraordinarily early. And all four of those have occurred within the last 15 years. So, I mean, all I can say is that if you don't believe in climate change, you're not a farmer. When you taste Vinclair, and then you taste a, a wine that's either blended or unblended from those Vinclair, when it goes through a secondary fermentation, does that change the expression of the terroir? And then when dosage does or doesn't happen, does that change the expression of the terroir? Because you've seen it at different stages. I think that secondary fermentation does a lot to complete the expression of champagne. I mean, even today, with the ripeness that we get in the region, there's still a reason why people are making champagne and not still wine. I mean, you know, there, there are some good Coteau Champenois in both red and white, but none of them are as good as the best champagnes. So yeah, I, I do think that the secondary fermentation it helps to expand and, and complete the wine, and, and that increases its expression of everything. And, you know, terroir expression is, is one of those. And, you know, dosage, I think, is one of the most misunderstood things in, in the world of champagne. Because it is sugar. And so people tend to think of it in terms of sweetness. So even producers, honestly. It's not just a consumer misconception. I mean, producers, they'll say, well, you know, if you like a sweeter wine, I can put like three more grams in, you know, if you like a drier one, I can just give it to you non-dosé, you know, and, but to say that is missing the entire point of dosage. Because a, a wine is going to find its most complete expression when it's in balance. And you can say, okay, what is balance, right? You, know, you can argue, you can argue about that. But I would say that balance in a champagne occurs when you have fruit, alcohol, and acidity all working harmoniously together. And when you have all the things that we like about wine, right? We like complexity. We like length. We like aroma. When all these things are optimized. So when you do a dosage trial, the better producers will, you know, instead of just doing a knee jerk, like I'm going to put in six grams, um, they'll take the same wine and they'll, they'll I mean, some, some people go overboard and, and we'll, we'll do like zero, one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to 10, you know, and, and so the, you'll, you'll have 11 samples in front of you and you, know, you might taste them blind or, you know, you might, you know, go through them or, or whatever. But when you're tasting the same wine at different dosage levels, you really see how even just one gram, sometimes even half a gram will completely change a wine's length, for example. A, a lot of people, they'll focus on, on sugar. And, you know, be talking about how, well, if the sugar is too high, that's obscuring the other elements in the wine. What happens too, though, is that if the sugar is too low, then the wine is insufficiently expressed. And so it feels just as stunted. And so sometimes you'll taste a wine that's like four grams or five grams or whatever. And you'll think like this wine, you know, like the fruit is there, but like it just feels a little bit short, it feels a little bit compressed. And 
sometimes the answer is to go down a gram. Sometimes the answer is go up a gram. And you have to do both to really, to, to, to really know. So the thing is that, you know, dosage, it's really not about sweetness. In fact, in a trial like this, when you hit the perfect dosage, when you hit the dosage that is the most harmonious with that particular wine, the sugar seems to disappear. And in fact, lower dosage wines oftentimes taste sweeter because you feel the sugar standing apart from the other elements of the wine, right? But if it's in balance and the sugar is perfectly integrated and it just disappears into the fabric of the wine, that's when you know you dosed it properly. We're only mortal, so you don't get a chance to sit down in these trials 70 years ago and see how the wine is aged. But if it goes hidden, do you think it stays hidden for the life of the wine or... If it shows sugary in the beginning, does it stay sugary, or do things change over time in the bottle? Normally, champagne doesn't get all disgorged at one time. So like a champagne will be disgorged over several years. And it is common for Champenois to dose a wine higher at the beginning, and then as the wine matures, then to dose it lower. I can understand this for, for non, non-vintage wines, because you're really looking at present consumption. But for me, I think that if a wine starts out balanced, it'll be balanced for the rest of its life. You know, people say that in Burgundy, right? Wine that drinks well young will always drink well. And so, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you, you taste, sometimes you taste a very old champagne, this champagne that was discoursed like 30 or 40 years ago, and you realize this was overdosed, <laughs> you know, and you, you can really taste the imbalance. You know, I mean, even at that age, when you think like sugar, sugar's supposed to drop out, it's supposed to go away. I'm a big advocate of you know, getting the balance right in the beginning, and then I have faith. So one of the things you pointed out in your book is kind of two-pronged. One is that the history of champagne wasn't always about sparkling wine. There was a long period of time where there were still wines, and that sparkling wine in that time would have been a, a much smaller subset of, of the wines of the region. Mm-hmm. And then you point out that certain villages of champagne became famous after the shift into sparkling wine. And so I guess that's another way to kind of look even further at what you were talking about a little bit earlier about how a secondary fermentation can extend a expression of terroir because certain of these places within the bigger zone only became famous after the switch to full-on sparkling. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You see this especially in the Côte de Blanc. Um, I mean, Champagne in the Middle Ages, you know, Champagne was a source of red wine. Um, you know, it was a light red wine, to be sure but it made still red wine, you know, and it competed with Burgundy in, in that regard. And so Champagne as a sparkling wine came about just about the beginning of the 18th century. But even through the 18th century and, and into the 19th, you know, oftentimes we, you know, we assume like, oh, well, Champagne just switched over to sparkling. And, and so it's been a sparkling wine for, you know, the last like 250 years. And that's just not true. In fact, for a long time, the bulk of the wine made was, was, it continued to be a still wine. And a sparkling wine was really looked down upon, in fact. You know, it was seen as this kind of fad. It was like for lower class people and like for prostitutes and, you know, for like, it was a little bit disreputable. The fun people drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Serious wine connoisseurs, like, you know, like you would drink red wine. You mentioned one of those in your book. You talked about a particular gourmand who shunned the sparkling yeah, wine. Yeah, Saint-Evermont. Um, yeah, he, he was very much against uh, sparkling wine, and you know, he saw it as like, morally reprehensible. But he was a big fan of uh, wines of champagne you know, in general. You know, prior to this, the real heart of champagne was in the Montagne de France, or what we know now as the Montagne de France, right? So the area around Verzenay and Verzi, like this, this was really the, the heart of champagne production. IE too, you know, down uh, on the southern flank of the Montagne, you know, IE, Ambonet, Bouzy, like this area. These terroirs were always very important because they could grow Pinot Noir or they could grow red grapes. The Cote de Blanc was a minor region, honestly, prior to sparkling wine. What's really great about your book is that you really get into the different terroirs of the place. You divide it into seven zones in your book, which you say is maybe not how other people would do it, but that's the way you feel works. That's true. What are those seven? You know, most people think about three main regions. So there's the Montagne de France, there is the Côte de Blanc, and there's the Vallée de la Marne. There are many people who also think of the Aube. The main viticultural region of the Aube is the Côte de Bar. So that's four. There is the Cézanne, which is to the south of the Côte de Blanc. And that covers quite a large area in its own right. 
So that's certainly a fifth. And then for me, you know, I guess the place where I depart, you know, into controversy is the area that you'll see listed as the Valley de la Marne in all wine books is very, is very large. It travels the entire length of the Marne River, you know, that's within the Appalachian. And of course, the terroir changes quite a bit, you know, from one end to the other. And so, you know, Champagne winemakers, they often make a distinction between the Grand Valley de la Marne and the rest of the Valley de la Marne. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a qualitative distinction. It's just that the regions are so different that it's difficult to talk about them in relationship to each other. So that's what I've done in this book. I've separated the Grand Valley de la Marne, which I see as being east of Cumier. This area, even though it's on the Marne River, it has a lot more in common with the Montagne de France than it does with the rest of the Valley de la Marne. The only ground crew in this area is Ai, which is famous for Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay uh, you know, really thrive uh, you know, along this whole, whole section. And then once you get west of Cumier into the Valley de la Marne itself, then Meunier really takes over. And the soils change, you know, the climate changes, and that's where Meunier really thrives. So I think that that's a very useful distinction. So I separate that out. And there's another little section of the Valley de la Marne that I separate, uh, which is called the Coteau Sud d'Epernay. This is a little corner that's just to the southwest of Epernay itself. And so it's kind of tucked in between the Cote de Blanc and the Valley de la Marne. And again, you know, in wine books, you'll see this listed as, as Valley de la Marne. But here, I think also the terroir is sufficiently different that it deserves to be treated as a region of its own right. And you have some interesting you know, producers here who are really trying to energize this, this region. You know, the old timer there is José Michel. So he's there in the village of Moussy. But, you know, today you have Lahert. There's Selec, Jean-Marc Selec, uh, you know, who's doing really great things. So you know, we do have the opportunity to really see what this terroir can do. I mean, that seems like the fun part to be writing this book when you're writing it, is that there are a lot of opportunities like that. Yeah. You know, today there are a lot more single vineyard and single terroir wines that are being bottled in Champagne. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better, but I think as a student of Champagne, it allows us to see a very restricted picture that we weren't able to do even just 10 or 20 years ago. You know, for me, soil types that would come to mind for Champagne are Marley clay, so clay limestone mix of some sort, and then chalk. But you describe much more in depth than that, breaking it down into those seven areas. So there are some parts that are chalky, and then in fact, there's multiple types of chalk. Sure. There's some parts that have a, a heavy clay topsoil, like the areas that are good for Meunier, which you just talked about. And then you have parts that are really good for Pinot, like IE. And so what should I be thinking about? It's a little bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's uh, Champagne's, yeah, Champagne's geology is actually much more complex than we've been trained to give it credit for. Because we think, oh yeah, you know, Campania and chalk, like, you know, there's this chalky bedrock, you know, and that's true, actually. Over most of Champagne, you know, it's this particular type of Cretaceous chalk that forms a bedrock. Uh, but what lies above that can change dramatically from one, one area to the next. And in some places, that level of topsoil can actually be quite thick. So then you think, well, you know, if you're farming really industrially and, you know, you have this really shallow root system, <laughs> your roots might not even be touching the chalk, right? Then what are you talking about when you talk about terroir? But yeah, these topsoils vary tremendously. Um, there is a lot of clay. Um, there are other types of limestone. There are some places where there's sand, uh, there's various kinds of like gravels and you know, stony soils. When, when you look at Champagne, just geologically, if you can look at a map of France in general, I think what's really interesting is to put Champagne in the context of the Paris Basin. The Paris Basin is this huge geological formation, right, that covers like a quarter of France. And so it's built in sort of concentric circles. And so in Champagne, you know, which sort of lies on the eastern side of it, you see these kind of bands of these huge bands of of geology and so the oldest soils are in the east and then the farther you move west the progressively younger the soils become so the easternmost area is the Aube, so the Cote de Bar and that's not even Cretaceous shock that's Kimmerigian so that's this Kimmerigian marl that's the exact same Kimmerigian as is found in Chablis which Chablis is, is not far away. I mean, Chablis is closer to you know, the Côte d'Ivoire than, than Epernay is. So, so that creates a whole different sort of soil expression. 
And then as you move west, then you, know, you hit areas like Mongu or Vitri. And this is on another type of chalk completely called Turonian. And then it's only after that that you move into like the Cretaceous chalk. And so then the heart of Champagne that we think about, like you know, the area around France and Epernay, so like the Côte de Blanc and the Montagne de France and all this. So this is where you have this really nice balance between this Cretaceous chalk bedrock and you know, these interesting topsoils. And so you have this great balance. And it's no accident that like all the Grand Crus are located in, in this area. And then as you move west towards the Valley de la Marne, then that chalky bedrock actually descends farther and farther beneath the surface. And so you have, a, you have an increasing predominance of clay, like younger clay topsoils, and this becomes deeper and deeper. Uh, I mean, Pinot Noir hates, hates this. Chardonnay can do okay in certain areas, but really it's Meunier that thrives in, in these deep soils. Or that's one of the reasons why you know, Meunier is so predominant in the Valley de la Marne. I mean, this is a good example of where better understanding the terroir of the place could help you understand what kind of wines would thrive there. Absolutely. Because I feel like even 10 years ago, people just talked about Meunier as a, like an anecdotal wine that was kind of added to blends to add like a foxy character to yeah. the nose or something, <laughs> you know, and before yeah, yeah. certain growers started really getting, I mean, obviously you, you mentioned Jose Michel before, but I think Prevo and Lorio sort of brought it to some prominence, you know, this Absolutely. idea of... Pinot Meunier being a serious wine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Meunier accounts for a third of the grapes in Champagne. So it's, it's difficult to talk about it as an inferior grape variety. And I think there are a lot of these growers, like you say, you know, who have demonstrated that if you treat Meunier like a serious wine and you treat it like a serious grape variety, then, you know, maybe it can make, you know, serious Champagne. So are there other times like that? I mean, obviously the Cote de Blanc has a lot of Chardonnay and a fair amount of plantings and mid-slope chalk, but... You know, is there a, a great place for Arbonne or Petit Muselet or <laughs> Pinot Noir? Or does it show differently in different parts? So it's said, it's said in Champagne that Chardonnay prefers the chalkiest soils, and it also prefers to face east. And so the Côte de Blanc is the, you know, most nakedly chalky place in Champagne. You know, sometimes there's, the topsoil is only like 20 or 25 centimeters, and, and then it's just like, you know, that chalk, like straight away. And the Côte de Blanc is predominantly east-facing. You know, it's this whole escarpment that just generally faces east. So, you know, by that logic, then it's, it's the natural home for Chardonnay. In fact, what you see in the Montagne de France, so in the Montagne de France on the eastern side, it's shaped like a horseshoe, right? So there are vineyards that face north, and then it curves around, and then there are vineyards that face east, and then as it curves around, there are vineyards that face south. And so in the north and south, Pinot Noir predominate. But then on those vineyards that face east, there are actually two villages that even though they're in the Montagne de France, which we associate with Pinot Noir, they're 95% Chardonnay. And that's because they're east-facing. And on these, also these chalky soils. Is that where Margaine has their Chardonnay? That is where Margaine is, yeah. The village of Villiers-Marmarie. Just south of that is Trepaille, where David Leclepar is. And then also, you know, when you look in places like Bouzy, you know, where Bouzy, we think, okay, this is one of the greatest terroirs of Pinot Noir. And it is. Most of it is, is all south-facing. And Pinot likes that. You know, Pinot likes a lot of sun and likes these really south-facing slopes. But then there are these kind of ridges in Boozy. And so then the exposure turns a little bit. And then also on these ridges, the top of the ridge will be chalky. And then the base will be more clay. And so that's where you really find the Chardonnay growing in Boozy. So like Pierre Payard, they do a single vineyard uh, you know, Chardonnay called Montelet, uh, you know, which is fantastic. And so that becomes really interesting too, is that even, you know, even within, you know, very predominantly Pinot terroirs, you can find these islands of Chardonnay. So that makes sense for grape varieties, but do you find that soil types also carry through to how someone might proceed with elevage? Does it make sense if you have more clay to leave it on the leaves longer or something like along those lines? Some people will say like, like Gaston Chiquet, for example, um, you know, they're in Dizy which is in the Grand Valais. And in this area, you know, there are like clay, you know, there's a fair bit of, of clay topsoil. And so all, all of their wines are done in stainless. They haven't used wood since, you know, like the 60s or 50s. So yeah, so they say the reason they use stainless is because their wines already have this natural weight and presence. And so, you know, when they put in an oak, it just gets too large. And they say like they have no problem with oak and they might work in a different terroir, just not theirs. 
I mean, this sounds so amateur on my part, but really when you go through in the book each village and you say, this is what Suisse tastes like, and you know, a grower that's located in Suisse and has holdings there as well as holdings somewhere else is Gimene. It makes sense to me that those wines taste like Suisse, given the description that you said. Now, I guess from your perspective, you're you're working backwards from a liquid in a lot of cases too. So, I mean, it, hopefully it does make sense, right? But what I, I, I mean, again, it sounds so amateur, but what I'm realizing is that, that it's supposed to taste like that because that's that place. And if it were somewhere else in, even just down the road, Avise, it would taste different. And I guess that's the whole terroir point. But I'm just not used to applying that lens to champagne to the degree that I'm used to applying it to so many other places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as consumers, we haven't been trained to think that way about champagne, apart, partially because it's historically been a blended wine. So, you know, if it's a region-wide blend, then of course we're not going to break it up, you know, so then it's sold by brand instead of by place. But then also... Yeah, up until now, you know, we haven't really, you know, the, the idea of sub-regions in Champagne or the idea of breaking terroir specificity down in, into smaller components in Champagne is, is, has really been alien to us, you know, as you know, wine consumers. And, you know, I mean, I think that, I think that we're, we're still only at the beginning. You know, a, a lot of my book deals with terroir and, and because that's what I'm interested in. And I do think that Champagne is as terroir expressive a wine as, as any other. But, you know, at the same time, I take pains to say that my book isn't a definitive guide to Champagne's terroir because that's not something that we can yet write. We just don't have, we don't have the tools. We don't have the data, right? What I would like to, you know, to accomplish my book is to at least push the dialogue in that direction at least get people thinking about terroir in Champagne. As you've seen market trends over the 20th century and now the 21st century, do you think that sometimes people are actually referring to the terroir of the place in the style of wine that they like at any given decade? Sometimes I've seen certain critics or certain um, eras in other wines prefer a certain kind of style that's really linked to the soil type. I mean, yes, the winemaking too, but they're liking heavy clay or they're liking limestone yeah. or, and they end up preferring that as a taste, but it, it's not so much that they prefer the company's brand on the label, which they do. That's yeah. what they reach for, yeah. but they're actually reaching for the clay or the limestone. Yeah, that's interesting. Now that makes me think about like Matt Kramer in Making Sense of Burgundy. He says that the reason that Romane Conti was so highly prized at the time was that it was the embodiment of finesse. And so in a world where everything is rustic and everything is unpolished, then refinement really stands out. Whereas he says today, everything is refined. Everything around us is super polished. And so because of that, then we seek power instead. And, you know, he's writing in the 90s where we really actually were seeking power. And so he was saying that, you know, well, you know, if it were classified today, maybe Richebourg would, would be the most highly prized. As far as Champagne, you know, because, because Champagne has been blended, um, you know, I'm not sure that we ever got that far in, with Champagne as, you know, as, as opposed to other wines. But, you know, we have this, we have this image, you know, today of, of Champagne as a very elegant wine. You know, we like it to be, to be racy. We like it to be uh, acidic. We like to be refreshing. Usually we like it fairly light in body. Like some people get really thrown by full-bodied champagnes. And so it's no accident that today Blanc de Blanc is so in vogue because it, it, it embodies our sort of stereotype of what champagne should be. But, you know, what's exciting is that champagne is an extremely diverse region. And, you know, sometimes I, I feel like you can find as many styles of champagne as you can of still wine. And today, as we have more and more producers you know, exploring the boundaries of this, champagne is more diverse than ever before. So I think anytime you put terroir into a conversation, it, it also complicates other signifiers like vintage. So to use another example of a different region in Bordeaux, you know, the right bank with all that clay did really well in 98, whereas mm -hmm. the left bank didn't. 
and say in 96, you know, the Merlot didn't do well on the left bank. So a lot of the wines ended up being more Cabernet. There was not so much Merlot to go around in the blends. So do you see situations like that where maybe a particular vintage was really good in the, you know, the Cote de Blanc, but it wasn't that great in the, the different parts of the Valais de Marne or the opposite or. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There's a lot of regionality in, in vintages in Champagne. You know, this year, 2017, Chardonnay is clearly the superstar. Red grapes suffered quite, quite a bit. I think that in wet years, you know, you really see the power of chalk. In wet years, clay can get a little bit waterlogged. So that can make the vine suffer. Chalk manages water really well. So yeah, there are certainly vintages where, you know, Pinot Noir is more predominant or Chardonnay is more predominant. And also, there are vintages where one area might fare better than another because of rainfall or because of hail or because of frost or, or whatever. Maybe an extreme example is, is last year, 2016, where the, the Côte de Bar was hammered by frost. On average, they lost 50% across the whole region, but there were individual areas like Rupert Loire, for example, or Natalie Falme, uh, they lost essentially 100% of their crop. Historically, that's another big reason why champagne was always a blended wine, so that you're, it reduces your reliance on specific places. Because 96 seems to me in champagne like a vintage that different people have different opinions about. It sometimes feels like people are talking about two different vintages, and maybe that's just the skill of a great producer versus a less great producer or something like that. But I just wonder if there's something more to the terroir of the vintage that would have allowed certain wines to come out one way and other wines from Champagne to come out another. In the case of 96, I think most everyone you know, would, would admit that they just picked too early. Sometimes you felt the effects of that more in Pinot Noir. You know, Pinot Noir and terroirs may not have, have appeared as majestic as, as they could have been. But it was, it was really a problem like, everywhere. I think it was still, it, it was still this era where you know, people were relying a little bit too much on numbers and not enough on organoleptics. You know, you know there, there, are, there are vintages where you'll feel this, this, this really marked difference you know, between one variety or another. Um, you know, like I said, 2017, like, you know, when, when you, like, I expect that, that uh, next spring, you know, when, when we're tasting Van Clare, we'll find much more consistency in Chardonnay than, than in, in other varieties. But there are a lot of variables involved. Sometimes it comes down to terroir, and, but sometimes it, you know, there, there are other things at play. Are there particular moments for you that have stood out where you're like, wow, Suisse killed it in this vintage, or you know, this was really an Ambonet year? Are there vintages that really favored one place or one zone? Definitely. In almost every vintage, there are superstars that stand out. Sometimes, sometimes too, these differences can be really subtle. Like, you know, you think the Cote de Blanc, you know, is not that big a place. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you think, well, one village should do, you know, pretty much as well as the next. Like, you know, I can understand if there's a difference between the Cote de Blanc and the Montagne de France, but, you know, between like Avis and Le Menil, like, is there really that much of a difference? And, and yeah, and there are some vintages, you know, when I'm tasting Van Clare and, you know, Le Menil will be, will be markedly more consistent or the wines will be much more expressive consistently than those of Avis. And this happens quite a bit. Uh, I think that one thing that, that we consistently forget is how large Champagne really is. You know, it, it's spread over this enormous area. You know, that alone lends itself to a, a ton of variation. And I think, you know, with, with this greater proliferation of producers, you know, where you have more people making their own wines, that injects a greater diversity of ideas. And so here you have this younger generation, you know, who's coming in and they've traveled, you know, they've all worked in California and Australia and, you know, they're coming back with, they've tasted the wines of the world and their parents didn't. This was the first generation to really do that. And so that kind of injection of new spirit and new ideas has, has really energized the region. One of the things that your book's really good at is kind of identifying growers who are on the cusp that are maybe a little less well-known who are doing some interesting things. If you were to take one step back and say, this person worked with that person, and so his thinking is along those lines, or this person is from that part of Champagne, and so his thinking or her thinking is along these lines, do you see certain schools of either place or tutelage? 
Not necessarily, no. It's rarely so cut and dried. One of the terms that I hate most is uh, Solos disciples. Because there are a lot of people who have studied with Anselm Solos, all right? And, and so, yeah, people tend to use, you know, use this term. But when you actually look at these growers, they're extremely diverse. So, and none of them work like, like the other, right? So, Vuete Sorbet, you know, Bertrand Gautreau is one of the most militant advocates of biodynamics in Champagne. But Solos himself hates biodynamics. <laughs> He's, you know, he, he wants nothing to do with it. And, you know, the other so-called disciples, Ulysse Collin, Jérôme Prévost, Alexander Charton, you know, none of them are biodynamic. All of these producers, you know, work entirely differently. If they have anything in common, it's that Solos has really encouraged them to think, you know, and, and to really explore the boundaries of what they're doing in a particular way. And so, you know, maybe, maybe there's a common thread there. But, you know, I mean, there are certainly some, some growers who have been influenced by others to, to become organic, you know, or to work more sustainably, or to use a horse, you know, or, you know, th things like that. I think that, you know, there's a lot of communication between growers, you know, in a way that didn't happen before, traditionally, in, in Champagne. But yeah, I, I think, you know, what you see now in, in Champagne is that certainly at the top level, among the best producers, there's a lot of individual expression. And honestly, you know, Champagne too, it's not just, it's not just growers. Uh, you know, the top houses are working much, much differently than they were 20 years ago, even more so in the vineyards than in the cellars. You know, I remember, you know, being, you know, being in vineyards, you know, in, in Le Menil, you know, with Pascal Doquet, who is an extremely talented viticulturist. You know, we're sitting there in, in the middle of Lemonia, like looking around and, and, you know, and he's saying, you know, look, among my neighbors, you know, who's making the most progress? It's not like this grower next to me or that grower, you know, it's, it's all these houses. It's Vauclicot, it's Bollinger, it's, you know, and he's like, kudos to them. We, we need them to energize our, our appellation. And, you know, that is in fact really true. You've lived in Champagne almost 10 years at this point, right? Yeah. So if you were to extend that out for another 10 years, what would be some of the challenges, but then also some of the predictions for how that's going to look on the vineyard level? Certainly, there will be a decrease in herbicides. This is big right now. And you know, a lot of traditional growers are still using systemic herbicides, which they just shouldn't. That's decreasing, you know, thankfully, but there's still a long way to go. Not that you know, everybody is going to become organic, and it's not even that everyone should be organic. You know, it's like certified organics might not necessarily be the answer for champagne, honestly. But I think that, you know, we've seen the Appalachian as a whole move in the direction of greater sustainability, and that's only going to increase. Um, what I would hope to see, what I think will happen, certainly in, among, you know, at the top level, is that there will be more emphasis on plant material. So not just viticulture, but the actual vine itself. You know, when we think about kind of the destructive influence of in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, what happened in Champagne, you know, we focus on industrial viticultures like chemical viticulture. And, you know, and that's, that's certainly true. But I think that, you know, equally destructive is the selection of, of clones and oftentimes selection of clones for productivity rather than for quality. And What's exciting now is that you know, there are people who are very interested in this. And so, for example, there's a project that's spearheaded right now by Antoine Payard of Pierre Payard. And, uh, you know, it involves like you know, a lot of great people, you know, like Thielmar, Benoit LaHaye, Alexander Charton, Baresh, Louis Roederer. And these guys are going into their vineyards and looking for really individual selection missiles, looking at old plants and their best plants. Um, and trying to essentially build a library, you know, build this, this Masala library for the future. Payard, you know, will say, I have like this old vineyard, you know, these old vines, you know, and that's great that they're 50 years old and whatever, but, you know, they're clones. And imagine what I could do or what my son or daughter can do in 50 years if it's actually good material. If we can make champagne this good already with inferior plant material, what can we do, you know, in the future with the optimal material? 
I mean, for me, sometimes what we could do in the future kind of looks like what we did in the past, by which I mean the vintages of the 60s. Some of those wines have held up really well. Absolutely. And you start to think like, could we get, <laughs> could we do that again? I mean, they're not fresh wines, right? Like yeah. they're not the aperitif style. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about old Bollinger and stuff Absolutely. like that. No, the 50s and 60s were a golden age in Champagne. There's, there's no question. In some sense, you know, people are saying, how do we recapture that, that sort of character? You know, conditions are very different now. Not only is climate different, but vineyards are different. Vineyards are, are planted differently. Uh, uh, culture is different. But in spirit, yes. It's like, how do we return to essentially this era of Champagne as a real wine? So, you know, you've done such amazing work in the, the book walking readers through the different villages and the characteristics and why, and then who makes wine in each of those villages. But, you know, that's perhaps too long of a discussion to have. But maybe if you could kind of highlight some of the key villages and characteristics in the zones, the seven zones, a verbal map of Champagne. The town of Epernay is the heart of the primary Champagne region. The vineyard areas kind of radiate out from there. So the Cote de Blanc, for example, you know, it, it starts you know, just below Epernay and, and goes south. And the Cote de Blanc is, is one of the easiest sections of Champagne to understand. You have a, a high number of, of Grand Cru villages, right? So you have like Chouilly, Cremant, Avis, Auger, Luminil. And each of these has different characteristics, right? So you can talk, I mean, what's, what's great about using the Cote de Blanc as an illustration is that you can talk about macro terroir and micro terroir. Like a Blanc de Blanc from the Cote de Blanc as a whole, let's say you blend all these villages together, that wine will be distinctly different than a Chardonnay from the Montaigne de Reims, right? Or Valley de la Marne. There's something about the Cote de Blanc. There's this finesse, there's this elegance of texture, there's this you know, racy structure. All of that is, is very Cote de Blanc. But then when you start drilling down, then you see that, you know, Cremant and Avis tend to be quite muscular. Le Menil tends to be, you know, quite acidic and racy. And, you know, Auger tends to be really flowery and perfumey. And so each of these places will you know, have its own character. And then within each village, you can break it down even further. Like, you know, the east side and the west side of Cremant are totally different. You know, in Avis, there are clay parcels and there are chalk parcels. And those give very different things. In Le Menil, the northern side of the village and the southern side of the village are, you know, they manifest themselves differently. And so you can get as granular as you want. Um, maybe the most complex region is the Montagne de France because it's so diverse. You know, when we think Montagne de France, we think of this eastern side where, you know, it's this horseshoe. And so in the south, we have Bouzy and Ambonnet, uh, you know, really famous Grand Cru villages. In the north, there's Verzi, Verzenay, also famous. But then as you move west, then like the soil gets much more varied. So you get in these villages like Lude, where Beresh is, or you know, a little bit farther than Rilly-la-Montagne, where uh, Vilmar is. You know, and here, the soil starts to get much more diverse. And then you go even farther west, and then you get to like where Jerome Prévost is, or you know, where Savar is. And here, here, the soil is so different that you know, in that eastern part, like Pinot Noir really predominates, and then Chardonnay grows in those places where Pinot Noir is implanted. By the time you get to where Savar is, um, I mean, Savar isn't a good example because that, that, his village is really known for Pinot Noir, but in the villages around it, then you have these really diverse soils that support all three varieties. So it's this really complex region. You know, in the Valley de la Marne, starting in the east and then moving progressively west, the chalk is deeper and deeper underneath the, the topsoils, right? So on that eastern side, then you have a greater diversity of plantings, right? You have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Meunier. And, and then as you move farther west, then Meunier really begins to take over. So like farther on, on that eastern side, you have growers like Tarlant, you know, Michel Loriot, you know, in Festini, um, Jérôme Deor. And then you reach this kind of extreme on the very west where like Francoise Bedel is about as far west as you can possibly go in Champagne. Like, it's easier to get to her house from, from Paris. <laughs> and there, you know, you really see, like, the influence of these deep soils. And then, you know, you go down farther south. In the Côte de Bar, here you have a completely different soil type. And 
So it's Kimmeridgian, same as Chablis, but the catch is that the predominant variety in the Cote de Bar is actually Pinot Noir. So you have this, this really saline, you know, really umami minerality, but you also have this relatively rich and ripe Pinot Noir because the Aube is, is farther south than the rest of Champagne, right? So it's, it's a little bit warmer. It's just, just warm enough that it gives wines a bigger body and you know, more overt fruit. So you, know, you think about people like Cedric Bouchard, Who's, I mean, he's, he's an extreme because he's looking for really low yield, you know, really concentrated. I mean, he's, he's trying to make red wine, basically, right? But if he were located in the Marne, his wines would be very different. It's this location that he's in that really facilitates, you know, what, what he's doing. You know, you taste, you know, wines like Drapier, you know, as well. Like, you know, Drapier's Pinot Noir tends to be like so velvety and, and mouth-filling, you know, and, and, you know, really textural and, you know, that, that's something that, that's really, you know, very, very much of the Cote de Bar. So, I mean, I guess in, in every subregion, you know, you find more and more producers making really distinctive and really site-specific wines. And, and so what's wonderful about, you know, being a champagne consumer today is that we have these opportunities that, you know, I mean, even 20 years ago when I started working with champagne, there just wasn't this kind of diversity. So are there terroirs that you suspect would be amazing single village terroirs that just don't really have a champion at this moment that are sort of blended away? Probably. I mean, I think that, you know, right now it's sort of the case that every village has one or two guys that, that are really the superstars. Um, there are some villages that are, you know, maybe more blessed, like Aviz or Ambonet. But in general, the number is fairly small. And so there's always room for somebody to step up. You know, a one very recent example that comes to mind is uh, Verzi. So Verzi is just next to Verzenay. And Verzenay is, is, you know, considered to be one of the greatest homes of Pinot Noir and, you know, historically a very important village. You know, Verzenay has a champion in Ugodme. I like the wines of Lalmont as well. But Verzi for a long time, like, had nobody. And so, you know, today you have two guys, actually. Muzan Leroux, who, uh, um, you know, their son Sebastian has just taken over. And, and so he's really trying to push the Sicilian state forward. And then uh, across the village, uh, you have this other guy, Alexander Penet, who's taking a completely different approach, but trying to do his part to elevate the status of Verzi and to you know, really introduce us to what Verzi is about. And that's great because, you know, prior to this, it's very difficult to taste pure Verzi. And so I think that we're going to see that happen more and more. There's going to be kids that step up. Are there classic blends like, you know, tomato and basil taste good together? <laughs> yeah. Are there two villages or three village blends that are sort of classics? Not really. Some winemakers, you know, will say, yeah, if you combine IE and Cremant, like, you know, you can do no wrong. But it depends. Every house has their own set of crews that they rely on. Yeah, and it, it changes from one winemaker to another. Are there terroirs that are specifically suited towards certain winemaking protocols or certain aging regimes? I mean, Le Menil, for example, is really famous for producing Chardonnay of great longevity. Not only does it live a long time, it takes 10 years to really, to really come around, to really become drinkable. You know? you know, I think that you see a great difference between south-facing sites and north-facing ones. So Cumier, for example, is fully south-facing. It's one of the warmest terroirs in Champagne. You know, and there, you know, you think of like René Geoffroy's rosé is just so succulent and just packed with fruit. And you know, it really, you know, to me, that's really expressive of the Cumier terroir. And he designs this wine to be drunk young. Um, you could hold it for a few years, but really, you know, straight out of the gate, it's delicious. And, you know, where it wouldn't necessarily be that way if it were like in Verzenay. Verzenay is north-facing, and the wines tend to be much more structured. The fruit, instead of being you know, this like, really ripe red cherry fruit, it's more dark, more muscular, and, and you know, more reserved, and it and takes more time to come, to come around. Are there places that are just great blending material as opposed to great standalones? I think probably most of Champagne is that way. I mean, single vineyard Champagne is very much in vogue now, and so everybody's rushing to, you know, to create new ones. And that's great. I mean, you know, certainly as for us, that's great because, you know, we get to see a more detailed picture of Champagne Terroir. Um, but are all of these better wines for being single vineyard wines? 
Probably not. Probably many of these would, you know, would benefit from a bit of blending. So it depends. Do you think that there are single vineyards that are highly representative of that village? Like, are there combos where you say, like, that is classically that village, that single vineyard? Or the opposite? Are there exceptions where you're like, hard to even believe that single vineyard's in that village? So Les Châtillons in Le Menil, for example. You could argue it both ways. <laughs> you could say, wow, this is so Le Menil. Like, it has everything about it that if you're tasting it blind, you could recognize it as Le Menil. It's rich, it's racy, it's chalky, it's like quintessential Le Menil. On the other hand, when you taste in Pierre Peter's cellar, Chetillon tastes different than any other Menil <laughs> that he has. It's, it's really an, an anomaly. That's sort, of, that's sort of a funny example. That for me is a Grand Cru signature in Burgundy, when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. When it's complete on its own, when it's yeah. its own thing, and different than the others. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, there, there are really singular sites relating to you know, what, what you're talking about, like the Clos de Guas, you know, for example. Even more than Le Chatillon, it's, it's more its own thing and not really part of Maroy. Uh, it doesn't really relate to other wines from Maroy sur It's really its own thing. And you know, it's one of the most distinctive terroirs in Champagne. And, you know, and I think that you know, if we're talking Grand Cru in, in that sense of what you're saying, yeah, I mean, Clos de Guas is... So do you think that certain grape varieties have an advantage for a single cru? Like, is it easier to make a Chardonnay single cru than a Pinot single cru or vice versa? Not necessarily. You know, we see people doing it with all three varieties. You know, with, with the best wines of the world, variety isn't that important. Variety is just the vehicle for the expression. It's, it's the terroir that's paramount. But do you ever get the sense that maybe a certain place is under the wrong color? Have you ever thought, like, you know, these guys in XX town, if they just planted the other one, they'd be? I guess I haven't thought that because I haven't, I haven't gone in that direction. You know, there are times when I'm tasting Chardonnay that's planted on Pinot Noir soil, and, and I'll find that really interesting because, you know, I, I want to see that expression of soil. And so to see it in this kind of different translation is really exciting for me. But well, maybe, you know, when, when he or she replants, they might abandon Chardonnay. I, I don't know. I tend not to think about that question, whereas I'm sure that I'm sure that growers do. I think when it comes to wine, we're both fascinated by the exceptions. Mm-hmm. That's kind of shaped our our careers in different ways. So when somebody does something that's unusual, we're both there, like writing it down, <laughs> like wait a second, what? This is another angle on yeah. this understanding because exactly for the reasons you just said. Sure. I just wonder: is this going to lead to more customer confusion in this category? Is champagne so complex if it actually brings these things to the fore with dosage, with terroir, with vintage, with blends, with no blends? I'm not saying that the wine should be dumbed down to the lowest consumer, but say people don't take the time to find that out. Is it going to be hard for them to know where to take the cold champagne and serve it with the entree or the appetizer? Or I don't think so, because the wines that we're really talking about they still represent a very small minority of the champagne that's made. You know, champagne cranks out a ton of wine. So, you know, the people who are interested in pursuing these issues and who are receptive to these ideas, they're the ones that are going to gravitate towards, you know, the sort of champagnes that I talk about in my book. You know, whereas people who don't really have interest in that, there's still plenty of champagne that they can drink as well. Maybe one strength of champagne is that it can be both delicious and intellectually appealing at the same time. You know, you can be a total terroir geek or you can be a total novice who just wants to drink champagne and these wines will satisfy you. And I think that there are a lot of champagnes like that. It's not always the case that you have to think too hard about your wine. What's exciting is that now champagne offers us that, that option in a way that it didn't before. So one thing that I kind of realized in my own career was champagne was the hardest for me to judge quality. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to get to the point where I thought I could nail it. And you're even making it harder for me because now I realize <laughs> I have to look at it at a terroir level too, but for typicity basically yeah. to say, well, this yeah. is what that's supposed to be. But um, would you have tips for that in certain ways of approaching are there things that you've learned tasting champagne that are helpful for understanding or judging or 
approaching champagne? You know, a lot of people are thrown uh, by champagne, even, you know, professionals, they're thrown by champagne because of the bubbles. And then also because historically, champagne hasn't been as fruit forward as other wines, right? So sometimes a lot of the differences between one wine and another are, are much more subtle. But I think that, that as with any wine, harmony is, is really important. And so, again, you know, we can define that in many different ways, and, and it might differ between people. But I think that sometimes people tend to gravitate towards extremes. That becomes problematic, right? I think that for me, a, a wine, any wine, there should be a certain harmony of components, right? So all wines have fruit, they have acidity, you know, like, I mean, they have tannin to a certain extent. You know, but that you have all, all, these, all these components. You know, one really fundamental and basic question is, are these components all working together in harmony? Or is there, is there one of these that, that is too aggressive? Is, is the acidity completely sticking out in this wine? Is this wine overly sweet? Is this wine too tannic or whatever? For example, I think that there's, there's too much of an acceptance of non-dosé and low-dosage wines. I mean, there are some that are obviously very good. But then there are other champagnes that, you know, I think are really underdosed, but we have started to accept this as, as being normal. It's like our palate has, has you know, grown accustomed to, to that, especially with, with the issue of dosage. You know, it's a common perception that, well, I should like non-dosé champagnes because they should be intrinsically better. And I mean, I think that that's, that's just not true. I think that, that you need to push these ideas aside and really just taste what's in your glass. And it is a little bit different with, with champagne. It does take a different approach because of the bubbles, because of the high acidity, because of the reduced emphasis on fruit. But, you know, I think that it just requires experience and you just need to taste more. I always like tasting wines in pairs. You know, I find this to be particularly useful with champagne. You know, not necessarily to say this one is better than that one, but I think that oftentimes when you taste wines in pairs, one wine will illuminate an aspect of the other that you might not have noticed if you just drank it on its own. One of the things that in the past has brought about wines of extremes in the popular culture, I think, is the industry tasting, lining up 50, 100 wines and saying, taste through there. And then the wines that stand out are the wines that people like, and the wines stand out because they're at some sort of extreme. Absolutely. And so I personally find it challenging to taste a lot of champagnes, more than a lot of other categories. Mm -hmm. I would say old German Riesling, I find challenging. I find it challenging to drink a lot of VORS sherry, and I find it challenging to just drink champagne, like a bunch of them, to go for quality. And so are there thoughts that you have about, you know, how do you judge a bunch of champagnes? Do you take a break? Do you drink some water? Do you start in a certain way? Yeah, I I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that the high acidity and the effervescence, I think, make it, make it challenging. When I was tasting director of Wine and Spirits magazine, I would typically try to schedule 40 wines in a session, whatever wines we were tasting. And I found 40, you know, I mean, 40 is a lot. Like, you have to be a wine professional to taste 40 wines at a time. But, you know, the people on our panels, you know, they're professionals. So, you know, we could, we could do that with certain things like Barolo, you know, young Barolo. I mean, you know, like 30, 35, you know, is, is kind of the max. But with champagne, I found like the threshold was much lower. It was like 20 or 25 max. So I, I, I totally agree. I think that tasting a lot of champagne together is, is much more difficult. Here, like at a trade tasting, if you're faced with a bunch of champagnes, then I think you definitely need to take breaks. You need to drink some water. You need to reset your palate and recognize that it's, it's a different experience than tasting other wines and you know, just give it some room. What should I be thinking about opening and handling? At what age do I start opening things? And then at what vintage would that not be a good idea? Like what pratfalls are there? Or just as an approach to opening and serving? Well, today, um, you know, we're drinking champagne much younger than, than we used to. Um, you know, part of that is because, you know, particularly grower estates, they don't have the money to, to hold back wine. So they, they're releasing them younger. And, you know, in general, I mean, if a wine's good, it should drink well young. But there are certain vintages that are a little severe. So 2012, for example, it's very concentrated. It's very structured. I think it's going to be terrific in time, but it can be a little bit punishing right now. You know, 2008 is the same way. Another vintage of high ripeness and high acidity. So, you know, really deserves time 
you know, in, in the cellar. But, you know, I mean, there are vintages like 09, you know, 07, uh, you know, that, that are relatively youthful still, but that, that are forward and generous and, and, you know, perfectly approachable. On the other side, you know, champagne can usually age much longer than people give it credit for. And, you know, there are still vintages from the, from the 80s and 90s that, that are drinking superbly well. There are some vintages that have matured faster than expected. I attribute that to viticulture. I think that in time, we'll look back at the 80s and 90s and, and see clearly like the deficiencies in viticulture and, and how that contributed to a decrease in longevity. But, you know, that just means we should drink them up now. So in Italy, when you go to Carrasco, the cuisine changes versus La Mora. Or if you go to Serralunga, you can find a different kind of pasta. So is Champagne a region like that? Does the food change within the region? Funny enough, Champagne is, is definitely not a wine region that's known for its gastronomy. And in fact, probably globally, it's one of the least interesting places to eat in France. There isn't much of an indigenous cuisine. I attribute it to uh, Champagne always being a crossroads, uh, you know, ever since Roman times, honestly. Well, and, and also, not much food grows there, right? Because it's this really chalky, harsh terroir. So everything historically has been imported. And you know, even today, like, you, know, you go down to the Saturday market and everything comes from somewhere, somewhere else. This isn't to say that there aren't good restaurants in Champagne. I mean, you know, there are. But as far as like a regional identity of food, there's not much of that. If someone were to tackle another champagne book, if someone were to come up with a, another book, maybe you, maybe somebody else, I mean, what do you think is still left to write about in this subject? I mean, what really needs someone to get into? You know, our discussion on terroir is only beginning. I think that there's, there's a lot more room to explore that. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's going to happen too, you know, in, in the future. Getting deeper into viticulture in the region, you know, not just organics and biodynamics. There are plenty of organic and biodynamic producers in Champagne who are making amazing wines, and I respect them for it. But I don't think that that's necessarily the answer for everybody. I'm not entirely convinced of that. But certainly moving in a more sustainable direction, uh, you know, this is what Champagne is doing. And there is much more to say about that. I guess, too... I think that there's room to talk more about people, to talk more about you know, these characters in Champagne. You know, over the last couple of decades, you know, I've witnessed this extraordinary proliferation of talent and, you know, people making radically different wines, but people making really exciting wines. And like any great wines in the world, you know, like I always think great wines are an extension of the winemaker's personality. And there are a lot of really fascinating people in, in Champagne. And they, they deserve to have their stories told. Peter Leem's writing about a discussion in Champagne that's just beginning. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, thank you, Levy. Peter Leem of the book Champagne and also ChampagneGuide.net, his online website. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.